Happy New Year. And uh, this is, we've been talking about Advent, we've been talking about Christmas. This Sunday in the historic church calendar is called Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany was yesterday, some, some cultures call it Three Kings Day. It's the end of Christmas. So Christmas, unfortunately, is officially over. And uh, you have to shut the music off till next year. And uh, we'll be striking the decorations here this week. But Epiphany is about, it, it's, it's, it ties to Christmas. So Christmas is the coming of Christ to the world. Epiphany is about uh, the recognition that Jesus is the Christ. And so typically in church history, this time of year, we talk about uh, Christ and his ministry and his teaching and what he came to do. And so last week, uh, we started a little three-part mini-series in between the semesters here called The Commands of Christ. Now, there's a lot of commands of Christ, and so why do we only get three weeks on it? Well, we're focusing on three very specific commands. And the specific command we focused on last week was Jesus' call to follow him. He calls men everywhere, men and women, people everywhere, to follow him. This week, we're going to focus on his call to baptism. And next week, we're going to focus on his call to remember him through the Lord's Supper. So, you know, another way to say this is uh, the the commands of Christ. Another word is ordinances. We Baptists use the word ordinances instead of the word sacraments uh, for lots of technical reasons that you don't need to worry about. But today we're going to talk about baptism. Please open uh, your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 28 or find one in the chair next to you. Matthew 28. Baptism is one of the most important events and concepts in the Christian faith. And Christians all over the world have understood baptism in different ways uh, throughout the centuries. It's actually the primary thing. Baptism is the primary thing that separates churches from churches. It separates denominations from churches. So our brothers and sisters across the street at Ascension Lutheran over here, which, by the way, is an excellent Lutheran church. They're a gospel-centered Bible preaching Lutheran church, and that I have to make that distinction in our culture is is strange. But the one across the street, they preach the gospel. They're a wonderful church. Um, they understand baptism differently, and it's the primary thing that makes their their church different from ours. And I want to talk a little bit about how that is the case and why that is the case, why it's important, why I can say they are still believers and faithful followers of Christ over there as we are, even though their understanding of baptism is different. At Stonebrook, we practice what's called believer's baptism, or um, uh, the fancy word is credo baptism. Credo just means believe, so credo baptism is the historic delineation of our kind of baptism, and we say that baptism is an expression or a symbol or a testimony of our salvation through faith in Christ. We would say that baptism is a command from Jesus to be done by everyone who believes as soon as possible after they believe, that we should baptize believers as soon as possible after they believe in one key scripture on this command to baptize is Jesus' words himself, which every position, every baptism position would recognize. This is a command from Jesus. So let's just read Matthew 28 
18 through 20. This passage is among Jesus' final words to his disciples. This happened after he resurrected and before he ascended into heaven. He commissioned his disciples with a mission. We call this passage the Great Commission. Chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came near to them and he said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the church's marching orders. Every church on the planet has this as their mission. This is why the church exists, to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. A little history here, um, just a brief history. Uh, In the year 2020, which is a very long time ago, we don't like to talk about it, but a lot of things happened in 2020. One of those things that happened was that Stonebrook affiliated with a group of churches with whom we have a common statement of faith. Uh, We joined this group of churches because we recognized in this group a common mission, a common expression of belief. The affiliation with this particular group of churches, by the way, is is a bottom-up affiliation. It's a marriage of convenience in one one way. Uh, If something goes wrong with that group, we get to like step out of that affiliation with no consequence to us. Uh, Rather, we are partnering or joining our church. We are joining our stream of resources and gifting and stewardship to this affiliation of churches in order to partner together for mission. This group has a a statement of belief that we, we didn't have them install that in our church. We're this kind of church now, so now we have to believe this kind of thing. That's not how it works in this affiliation. Some denominations, it works that way. This is not how it works for us. But rather, we read the statement of faith and went, oh, that's what we believe. That's what we believe. And it's a good way of saying what we have always believed as a church. So here's how that particular statement of faith articulates baptism. It's the seventh article of their statement of faith on baptism, and it says this, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It's a testimony to his and her faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it's a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Some of you have asked recently because I, I don't know, slipped and said it or something on a Sunday morning a few few weeks ago during communion. I said that if you are a baptized believer, you are welcome to take part with us. We practice open communion. If you're a baptized believer, you're welcome to participate with us. You don't have to be a formal member of Stonebrook to take communion here. And I've got several emails about that statement, baptized 
believers. Some of you have asked about this language of baptism being a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper or to communion. Uh, We'll get a little more into this next week when we talk about communion, but the explanation really isn't complicated, and I hope it's not actually very scary either. here's, Here's how the logic of that of baptism being a prerequisite for communion goes, okay? So point number one, all believers should be baptized, we believe, we've always believed. All believers should be baptized as soon as possible after coming to faith in Christ. That's what our church has always taught. Point number two, communion is for believers. We would say that only believers should take communion. So the conclusion is, therefore, that those who take communion should be baptized. So that's, that was the thrust of my statement, that this is for baptized believers. And in other words, um, I wasn't intending to say anything controversial. Uh, rather, I think, given our belief on baptism and faith, the phrase baptized believer is a redundant statement. Okay, so um, I, but because I recognize that there's a lot of confusion out there, I also say there's, a, there's, there's two levels. There's, there's di- different formulations of baptism, I'll get into that in a little bit, among churches. So the denominations and the theologians, they have four or five, depending on how you slice it, major categories, major ways of thinking about baptism. But there's a lot of confusion among Christians. So I, I would say that most Christians, and this is not a fault, uh, this was me for 20 years until somebody asked me about it, and then I had to come up with an answer, they probably couldn't uh, formulate the five different categories and where they sit on the spectrum and why. So we have to say things like baptized believer, and the fact that that causes a conversation is what I was going for as a pastor, because I want to draw the point home that baptism is for believers, and believers should be baptized according to Christ. And that's actually what I'd like to focus on for the rest of the sermon here. I don't want to spend a lot, of time, a lot more time on this, uh, but since I, since I said it, since I got a lot of questions, I decided I needed to say something about it, and I wanted just to be fair to those who asked the question. In our church, in Stonebrook, we have not done a lot of teaching on baptism. We, we kind of have a practice that we've, we inherited uh, from, from a branch of the Christian family tree that we came from way back in the day. And there's just a way that we've always practiced baptism, but we very rarely, especially in public, communicate about it. And here's another factor of our congregation that is very important. In the la- uh, of the congregation uh, that exists here at Stonebrook Church, 62% of you are new here in the last five years. And so that's what, praise the Lord, that's amazing. It's, I think it's a reflection of our community that's a pretty transient community, a lot of people moving in, a lot of people moving out. But it just means we need to talk about it more. We need to be explicit, more explicit more often. So this is nobody's fault except the pastors that that, that statement, baptized believer, was confusing. It's, it's our fault. We've, uh, we've just never really had a sermon or, or teaching focused on baptism as an opportunity to clarify the thing we've always believed. So I apologize that that was confusing and alarming, and I hope that it, those three points just make sense. Communion is for believers. Believers should be baptized. So therefore, communion is for baptized believers. Pretty simple. But I want to focus on the rest of the time today, not just that, but the definition, the, the, what baptism is. And, and, and that definition being that 
Baptism is an act of obedience to Christ, symbolizing the believer's death to sin, symbolizing their burial of their old life and their resurrection into the newness of life found in Christ Jesus. And we see this in Matthew 28. We see Jesus commanding baptism of disciples. So being baptized is an act of obedience to Christ. To see that it should be done soon after coming to faith in Christ, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 37. Acts chapter 2 is the record of Peter preaching the first Christian church sermon. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost, and Peter preached the first sermon. The crowd, it says, was cut to the heart. They believed his message that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of the Creator God. You are in your sin, and you must turn to Christ. And they believed him. And in verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were pierced to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? In response to this newfound faith, they asked, So what do we do? How do we respond in faith to this gospel? And Peter said, Bow your head and pray this prayer. No, no, he said, sorry, he said, Repent. And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for the rest of the time, based on these passages, Matthew 28 and Acts 2, I'd like to address what the purpose of baptism is, who should be baptized. I want to do a quick summary of the other viewpoints on baptism. And I want to answer some common objections or concerns. So if you're here this morning, and you are a believer, and you have been baptized, my hope for you today is that you're going to be encouraged. As you remember your baptism, this wondrous, glorious moment where having professed faith in Christ, you went through this crazy ceremony of being dunked in water in front of a bunch of people. You are refreshed in its glorious significance, which we will talk about in the profound truths that it shows us. If you are here this morning and you are a believer and you have not been baptized, my hope is that you will see the need and the purpose of baptism and that you will obey Christ's command to be baptized very soon. If you are here this morning and you are either not sure whether you are a Christian or you know for sure that you are not a Christian. My hope is that you will come to see through this truth about what this weird Christian ceremony is. You will come to see by God's grace the powerful realities that this baptism thing symbolizes. You'll see the powerful realities and you will embrace your creator. You will turn to him in faith and receive his gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. This newness of life, this rebirth from spiritual death that you will bury your old way of life in the waters of baptism. All these wonderful truths represented by this weird and wonderful ceremony. So with that, what is the purpose of baptism? Here's my attempt at a summary. First, it is the biblical way of professing Saving faith in Christ. 
That's what baptism is for, according to the scriptures. Now, in our corner of the Christian family tree, and by that I mean evangelicals, specifically American evangelicals, for the last 150 years or so, we have developed some bad habits regarding professing faith in Christ. We've made it primarily an individualistic sort of thing, and primarily about, we've made it about things we think and things we say. I say I'm a Christian. I say I believe, therefore I must be a Christian, and therefore I must believe because I say I am one. So we were talking about this idea of making decisions for Jesus, changing your, your thinking. I'm going to decide to follow Christ, and I'm going to say that I'm a believer. Now that saying thing is biblical, but one, one way I want to show you how this bad, these bad habits have worked their way out, these bad habits of individualism and making it primarily about things we think and things we say, one of the ways this has worked itself out is in this idea of the sinner's prayer. If you're not familiar with what that is, you can like, turn your brain off for the next four minutes. But if you have heard of the sinner's prayer, I want you to hear me out for just a second. In the last 150 years, and I just, I'm saying 150 years because in America, 150 years sounds like a long time. If you're from any other part of the world, 150 years is like yesterday. This is new, okay? This is new in the church. That, uh, the, the sinner's prayer is this idea is that once you believe in Christ, you should pray this special prayer for salvation, and then you get saved. That's how, by praying this prayer. Now, where the sinner's prayer started was not there. It started as a very good thing. It started as not the sinner's prayer, but as the prayer of repentance. So Acts 2, Peter says, repent. And that was what that prayer was for, an expression of repentance. But we're missing that second part of Peter's command. Repent and what? You're good. No, repent and be baptized. Praying a prayer for repentance, you should do that. It's a really good thing to do. You should, you should have people, if you are sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say, I believe, now what? You should have them pray with you. You should have them pray, cry out to their God for the first time, maybe, admitting that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, in need of repentance. You should do that. And might I suggest that all of us should do that throughout our Christian life. We should cry out to God in our need. We should cry out in repentance. We should cry out saying, Lord, I need you freshly today. I think the problem came in when people started viewing this prayer of repentance as the only thing that needed to happen. Believe, great, pray, now you're in. They're missing a piece. What did Peter say? He said, repent, there's the sinner's prayer, and be baptized that is the biblical way of professing faith. Baptism is a public statement of commitment to Christ and his church. It comes from this idea of baptizing. Baptize, by the way, is a Greek word. It means immerse in water. It's a generic word. You, uh, when you were to take a white tunic and you wanted to turn it blue, you would, you would baptize it in blue dye. That's where we get the word, immerse, dip. And it was used all over the culture in Jesus' day. 
They used baptism for lots of different things. But primarily, it would be a a symbol of joining with a group of people. So professional guilds, like carpentry guilds, would baptize new members of the guild into the guild. They would dip and they'd have the ceremony. You're leaving your old way of life of being an idiot, and now you're a carpenter like the rest of us smart people. You are, you, you are taking on a whole way of life and a whole way of thinking. I belong to the carpentry guild or the blacksmithing guild or the goldsmithing guild or whatever. So baptism was a pretty normal thing. But what happened over the years was that guilds stopped existing. This practice of baptizing people into guilds stopped existing, but the church still hung on to this need for a very memorable entry into the fellowship. And so we kept baptism, and it became a churchy word rather than a normal word. So much so that we like, didn't find a way to translate the Greek word baptize. We just kept the Greek word. We just kept it because it's special. It's a public statement of commitment to Christ and his church. This statement puts the rest of the church on notice. You are raising your hand and you are saying, I am one of you now. Treat me like so. Treat me like I am a believer. And because because baptism is the biblical way of professing faith, it should be done by every believer soon after they profess saving faith, soon after they pray the sinner's prayer or the prayer of repentance. And I would say maybe immediately if possible. That example also exists in the book of Acts. I think that there is validity to having a small waiting period where people work with you, and this is not just an emotional decision, this is a serious life commitment. Let's schedule a time so that the whole church can celebrate with you. But it should be done as soon as possible after a profession of faith. So the second thing that it is for is that it is a physical symbol of a inward reality. So the thing that happens when you get saved, people can't see it. They can't see your old flesh that is dead in its sin coming to life. They will be able to see it pretty soon because they'll notice a whole change in your life. They'll notice a change in the way you treat people. They'll notice a, a change in the way you think about yourself and about other people. But this baptism is a powerful physical symbol representing what we would call spiritual baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or another phrase that the Bible uses for this same thing is called regeneration Or regeneration is just a word that means being born again. I'm piling all these words together. The new birth, born again, regeneration. That's all the same phrase. It's all the same word. Regeneration just literally means new birth. Baptism of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is talking about regeneration or the new birth. It's all talking about this same event. When you place your, Ephesians 1 says, when you place your faith in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus said you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom. It's all talking about the same concept. You might say, you might say that baptism, physical baptism in water, which is what Jesus is commanding, which is what Peter is commanding, is sort of the ultimate sermon illustration. It's a reminder for us. It's a reminder for you as the one being baptized. It's a reminder for the church of Christ's death and burial. 
of our death to sin and our burying of our sin and our old way of life. And that's why we dunk people down in water. We bury them in water. And it is also a symbol of Christ's rising to new life from the dead, conquering sin and death, and us also rising to new life in our faith. And that's why we, that's why we don't leave them in the water. <laughs> we bring them back up. <laughs> Because they are rising to new life. The water also provides an image of spiritual cleansing and forgiveness. First uh, Peter says that. First Peter 3. So it is a physical symbol of an inward reality. That's what it's for. Third, it is a vivid and memorable depiction of a spiritual reality. There is probably nothing more vividly memorable than being dunked in a pool of water in front of a bunch of people who are fully clothed. Well, hopefully you are as well. That is also a memorable part of the moment. Why was that symbol chosen? It locks in that moment in your memory. It locks in this season of time into your memory. You will never forget the day you were saved, the day you committed yourself to Christ, because it was a wonderful inward moment, a release, a spiritual rebirth, and there was this very strange physical thing that happened very shortly thereafter. It locks this moment into your time and mind and heart. And by the way, from now on, having been baptized, every time you see a baptism, every time you see someone dunked in water and pulled back out, you get to remember your moment. Your body does this physical thing that resonates. I'm not getting weird and mystical here. I'm just saying, like, I remember that feeling. I remember that day. Oh, what a great day that was. Oh, what a great season that was. You get to call to mind the joy of being a new believer, which the Psalms exhort you to do. A prayer to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Anybody feeling a little frail and weary in their faith, a little worn out, a little worn down. A prayer for that might be, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's from the Psalms. So here's the thing. It's not this baptism thing. It's not just for you, the one being baptized. It's not just for you and the benefits it brings you. It's about Everyone who has been baptized who's watching you has had that same experience of being dunked in water, and they all, at the same time, get to be uh, reminded of and remember their own baptism, and it encourages them and brings them joy, which is why baptism services are such a joyful, tearful, happy moment in the church, aren't they? Such an encouraging time because we're remembering our own baptism. We're remembering the baptism of our friends and family members. We're remembering not just our salvation. We're remembering the day I got to baptize my buddy who I worked with for a long time. We get to remember some of us baptizing our, 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 our kids, our, our kids at a young age who have professed faith. We're getting to remember to, some of us got to baptize our parents. What a wonderful thing your parents owning your faith as well. That's a weird reversal. In culture, it's usually us owning our parents' faith. But sometimes it gets to work the other direction, and it brings them courage and joy and refreshment. It benefits. So baptism, this, the importance of baptism, why is baptism important? Is it brings courage and benefit to everyone who sees it. Believers are reminded. Seekers are inspired. They're curious. What is this thing? Why are they all so happy about it? 
everyone gets a chance to look and see and remember Christ's work and rejoice. Everybody wins. Baptism services are some of my favorite times in the church. And it's one of the biggest problems we have with being in two services. Uh, And that's why we're attempting this between service baptism. We've done it twice now. It's a good effect. So I just encourage you, stay alert for baptism Sundays and stick around later. If you're at first service or second service, I'll say, try to come a little earlier. I know it's hard. 1030 is really early. Now it's going to be 10 o'clock. I'm so sorry. Make sure you don't miss out on this encouraging time. Don't just leave because you've got plans for the day. Cancel your plans. Stick around for the baptism service. You'll be encouraged. It would be great if the whole church, all 500 of us-ish, packed this room and had to stand around the edges and in the aisles and stuff like that to watch our brothers and sisters getting baptized. How cool would that be? Finally, the purpose of baptism. I saved the best for last. This is the most important one. I should have started here, but I intentionally did not because I want, if you remember nothing else, the purpose of baptism is to obey Christ, is obedience to Christ. Christ commanded that we be baptized in Matthew 28 as an entry into our lifelong following of him, a life of discipleship. Obeying Christ's commands is what our faith is all about. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. That's how we, that's how we know who's a believer, the ones that love Jesus. Those are the Christians. And Jesus said, how will you know if you love me? You will obey me. And so it's appropriate that our faith walk with Christ begins with an act of crazy obedience, of weird obedience. Yes, baptism's a little weird. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's an unmistakable act of obedience to Christ, and that's why it's appropriate that our faith journey starts with it. So, next, who should we baptize? Who should be baptized? This is the controversial question. I had water here somewhere. Oh, it's down there. Could you? Yeah, could, real quick. I'm going to dump it over my head as a symbol of baptism. <laughs> The quick answer, who should be baptized, is found in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, for me, settles this argument. Who should be baptized? The answer is, disciples should be baptized. Go, make disciples, and baptize them. Those who have placed, what's a disciple? A disciple is someone who has placed their faith in Jesus and desire to follow him. Some of you coming from mainline backgrounds like I did, when we hear the word disciple, we think of the 12. We think of Matthew and Peter and John and James and Nathaniel, and I never memorized that full list. So I could probably get it if you gave me enough time. When we think of disciples, we think of the 12. Did you know that disciple is a word for every Christian? If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus. Disciple just means student. So a disciple is somebody who has placed their faith in Jesus and is following him to learn from him. This person, this disciple, before we baptize them, they should demonstrate a clear understanding of the gospel message. How clear? Doesn't need to be like super complicated. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus is that savior. 
There's a few other things. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed. It helps. A person should demonstrate a clear understanding of the gospel message as well as a committed faith in Christ before being baptized. Because disciples are the ones that are supposed to be baptized. How old should they be? How old should someone be when you disciple them or when you baptize them? And maybe how long should they have been demonstrating an understanding of their faith before you baptize them? That's tricky. Age and length of time of demonstrating those things, I think they're less relevant considerations. I don't think, uh, I, I just think that it's important that they are able to express faith and to demonstrate it. Different families have different convictions on how ready kids are, and that's up to the parents. As a pastor, I leave the best judgment up to Christian parents on if their kids have professed faith and are showing the fruit of faith. I would be very careful with the questioning, how genuine is it really? Uh, because you will always find reasons to point at in a Christian's life and say, mm, I'm not sure. Obedience is not perfect. How perfect does it need to be? Well, what did Jesus say? How much faith do you need? Anybody remember? Mustard seed. Do you know how big a mustard seed is? It's a tiny one. But here's what a mustard seed does that a pebble the same size does not do. It sprouts and it grows and it grows big. Here's some keys. Here's some points to look out for if you want to write them down. If you need to ask me later, I didn't put them up on the screen. I probably should have. Some keys to look out for, I would think, before baptizing. And by the way, those of you who have experience in sharing the gospel and baptizing people will recognize that some of these can be seen like almost immediately. Okay? There will be a noticeable love for Jesus. There will be an affection for Jesus. Not coolness toward Jesus. Love and excitement, depending on their personality. Affection for Jesus. There will be a noticeable interest in God's word, in the Bible. You can see this in a four-year-old who likes to sit and listen to God's word being read. They're interested and they're curious about it. Maybe beyond their years. Like, wow, that's really weird. They seem to be really into it and they seem to be retaining it. There will be a noticeable sorrow of sin present and a spirit of repentance. I should not have done that. That was against God's word. And I'm sorry. There will be a desire to pray to God in Jesus' name. They want to talk to their dad. There will be a desire to be together with God's people in the church because they love worshiping their Savior and hearing about him in God's word. So if you want to know what are some things I should look for, a noticeable interest in God's word, a noticeable love for Jesus, a noticeable sorrow for sin, spirit of repentance, a desire to pray, and a desire to be together with God's people in the church. And if those things aren't present, then let's talk. Let's, have, let, let's, you know, are we just being too critical? Is our bar too high? Or is there just like, is it just not there? Regardless of age, regardless of age, regardless of age, there's sort of a discipleship issue. Um, meaning, I've baptized college students who fell away pretty quickly, and I've baptized kids who stuck around a very long time. I've baptized five-year-olds who had a more credible profession of faith than some college students. I, I'm not worried about the value judgment. I'm worried about 
the fact that you're entering into a lifetime of learning about Jesus and working together as we grow. Who should do the baptizing? Well, here's another quick note about who can do the baptizing. Um, We believe at Stonebrook that any baptized believer, there's that redundant statement again, any baptized believer can baptize. We don't think um, that you have to be a special kind of Christian. We think that Jesus' command in Matthew 28 was to all believers, go make disciples and baptize those disciples. Teach them to obey everything. Uh, We pastors, we are happy to baptize. Actually, we love doing it. But I think there's even a better picture of the Christian life for a new believer to be baptized by the one who has been helping them along in their faith when possible. Okay, real quick, a few minutes. I'm just going to, this is going to be totally unsatisfying, especially if you espouse one of these positions. You'll say, hey, there were a lot of holes in what you said, and I'm just going to give you a quick, the fact that these other positions exist. Overly brief synopsis of the other major understanding, the three other major understandings of baptism. The first, uh, I just wanted to put on the list, credo, baptist, or believers, baptism, that's us. The second is something called reformed pedo-baptism, and pedo is a word that means child or infant, and that's just a parrot with the word credo and pedo, infant baptism. And reformed pedo, reformed infant baptists, um, these are, uh, in the United States around here anyway, uh, Presbyterian or Reformed, if the church has the word Reformed in it, except Reformed Baptist, um, if the church is like Trinity Reformed um, over on Ontario, they would be in the Reformed churches. RCA, Reformed Church in America, uh, CRC, Christian Reformed Churches. These sorts of churches practice what's called Reformed uh, Pado-Baptism or Reformed Infant Baptism. And their belief, their formula of baptism is actually pretty close to us Credo-Baptists. Um, what they are saying when they baptize an infant is effectively the same thing we are doing when we dedicate our babies, okay? So when we dedicate a child to Christ, when we parents dedicate a child to Christ, we are doing a f- real close to the same sort of thing that a Reformed infant Baptist is doing when they baptize their babies. And the reason uh, that they see to baptize their babies has to do with the fact that, they're, uh, that they, they and we, by the way, would tie baptism and circumcision in the Old Covenant. Baptism in the New Covenant to circumcision in the Old Covenant. It's the sign of the covenant. And so just like circumcision was to be given to not only converts to Judaism, but also the children, the infants, infant males of Judaism, uh, so it is with baptism. It should be given to converts, and then they have to, and I respect the way they do this, I just... I don't go there with them, so it's harder. Um, they do baptize females. And for the fact that I have to say that out loud, you know, because if it's the same as the circumcision, they also baptize females. And, um, so what they're doing when they're saying their baptism, they're saying that this stuff, this church, it's for you. It's for you. These promises of Christ that if you believe, it's for you. So I'll tell you, I'll be honest, like I can go here. I can see their scriptural formula. And see how, like, I think, I, I get it. I, I understand how they get there. I, I turn left where they turn right upstream when it comes to how closely the Old Covenant is linked to the New Covenant. So if you want to talk about that later, I'm good with that. Um, that's different from the next one, which would be a position that says baptism saves you. And this would be uh, Lutherans and Methodists and the Church of England. And it would also be in a different way. Roman Catholic churches. 
So there's kind of two sub-brands of this one. Um, the Protestant formulation of the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Anglicans, they would affirm that God saves by grace alone, but he ordained baptism as a means by which sins are forgiven. And they would go to um, that same passage in Acts chapter 2, where it says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive. So they would say, see, uh, to be forgiven, you must uh, be baptized. And if you are baptized, then your sins are forgiven. And the argument is complicated, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and I just think it's, it's wrong. I just think it's wrong. I think that Lutherans, Luther never got far enough away from the Roman Catholic practice at the Reformation. I think that was his problem. And um, I think that Luther also thought of things differently than modern Lutherans do. And if you want to know more about what I mean, talk to me afterwards. It's a lot of fun. The Roman Catholic formulation of baptism saves you is different. Um, and I'm just going to be a little abrasive here and say it's a different gospel. You are not saved if you have been baptized in a Roman Catholic church. I think it's, I think it's well, I shouldn't say you are not saved by being baptized in a Roman Catholic church. That's more accurate. It's possible to be saved and be in a Roman Catholic church because God's word does all kinds of fun stuff when it is preached and they preach the word on occasion. And so I know Roman Catholics who are believers in Christ, all right? But it's not because they were baptized. I also know Lutherans who are believers in Christ and are saved, but it's not because they were baptized as infants. Okay, it's because they embrace Christ as their savior. The Roman Catholic formulation, baptism saves you. There's this Latin phrase, uh, ex opera operato. It means in the doing of it, it works. Um, it's not, you can't say this and be fair, but it's almost like magic. They get baptized, therefore they have grace imparted into them, and they are now saved. And uh, I, that's as simple as I'm going to make it, and I have argued with Roman Catholic theologians about this. And they, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't win, but, you know, I've had the discussion. <laughs> Another way of saying this, baptism saves you, is called baptismal regeneration. Some of you will recognize that phrase. Finally, there's one little obscure one. I'm just going to touch on it real quick, and then I'm going to be done. That it's a little bit different. It's not that baptism saves you, but it's that baptism is required for salvation. So these would be credo-baptists. These would be credo-baptists that say, if you don't get baptized, you're not a Christian. Okay, do you see the nuance? We credo-baptists say you should be baptized as an act of obedience to Christ, but baptism doesn't save you. This goes a half step further and says if you are not baptized, you are not a Christian. We don't believe that. And so, is it okay if I don't get baptized? My answer is not, no, because then you won't be saved. My answer is, well, I mean, you can be saved and not baptized, but why would you want to do that? That's my answer. Why would you not want to follow Christ's command to be baptized? I think that's how Paul would have answered the question. Why would you not get baptized? Let's, let's have that conversation rather than, nope, sorry, the Bible says if you're not baptized, you're not saved. All right. If you have more que questions about these positions, or if you, know, uh, if you want to know more specifically why I believe credo-baptism is the correct position and the other ones are varying degrees of wrong, let me say that no, carefully, um, I'd be happy to talk afterwards. If you'd like to 
uh, even debate, maybe not this afternoon, let's set up a debate. Um, I'm tired on Sunday afternoon, it's hard to debate. Three quick objections and we'll, we'll close the service out. There's three objections I wanted to address. There's a, I've heard lots of objections to getting baptized in the past, apart from, well, I'm not a believer, so I'm not going to get baptized. Yeah, great. You should, if you don't believe in Christ, don't get baptized. But for those of, those of you who do believe and have not been baptized, uh, the three major objections that I hear are somewhere in this neighborhood. And the first one is, I was already baptized as an infant. So was I. I was baptized on week four or whenever it is that the RCA church baptizes their babies. It was the Dutch Reformed Church still at that point because I'm old. It was in Pella, Iowa. I can still go to that building. It's kind of fun. Um, with respect, with respect, I hope I've shown that the biblical teaching on baptism is that it is to be given to disciples of Jesus. When I was an infant and was baptized, I was not a disciple. I was a baby. I was the child of disciples. I was the child of disciples, but I was not one who had yet professed faith in Christ. It's an act of obedience to Christ by the one being baptized, not by the ones doing the baptizing. I think that's another turn that is made. It's a way of responding to the gospel message. And my counsel to you is that if you were baptized as an infant, like I was, that you should follow the Bible's teaching and the Bible's examples of baptism. There is not one, this is going to be controversial, there is not one example of an infant baptism clearly shown in the scriptures. There's a passage that kind of shows that maybe a baby could have been included in the phrase. But it's not there. It's not clear. All the clear examples are of converts being baptized. Follow Christ's command to be baptized after you are his disciple. I've seen hundreds of believers baptized in my 20-odd years. Hundreds of people following through as adults. Probably dozens of which, myself included, who were baptized as infants. And that rebaptism, that rebaptism. Not baptism, I was baptized as a teenager, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I've, that's a different conversation. If you were baptized as an infant, getting rebaptized as an adult after following Christ, their spiritual life opens up like a flower. It, it, it's, I want to say this a little weirdly, it, like it unlocks part of their faith walk. It did for me, it's done for dozens of others that I've seen it, and I don't know how to explain it, except that I was obeying Christ finally in this area. So let me implore you as a pastor, as a friend, as a brother in Christ. Do it. That brings up a second objection. I'm afraid of what others will think. There's a couple different categories that this could take. One is that there are very few of us present here who could be seriously persecuted by family members back home for being baptized, for showing that you are a Christian. But for most of us in this crowd... The idea of being dipped in water in front of a crowd is an intimidating idea. It's an intimidating idea. And here, let me be honest. For most people that put this up, this was me as well. For most people that put up, I was already baptized as an infant. That was a theological smokescreen for the real issue. I was afraid of what other people would think. And just let me ask you one simple question for either of those two categories those who have a real objection that they might be seriously persecuted by their family, and those of us who would just simply have a little bit of pride in us, whose opinion do you fear more, the crowds or Christ's? 
obey Jesus. For those of you who are intimidated by the idea of doing something in front of the, the entire church, I get it. There's a real social dynamic. It's like, what is it, the second, third biggest fear of people? Like, one is spiders, two is death. Third, yeah, that's why I got that backwards. Third is standing in front of large groups of people. I'm missing the part of my brain that is afraid of that, I guess, apparently. If you are intimidated by the idea of doing something in front of the entire church, let me just simply assure you that it's only the only thoughts going through the mind of the congregation at the time are going to be thoughts of love and joy and support and happiness and encouragement. And they're going to just be so elated. You won't be embarrassing yourself in the least. They'll be proud of you. The crowd will be proud of you. They will be excited for you. Those of you who legitimately fear a threat at home of persecution, I just, let's just commit as a church to pray for you for supernatural courage and God's help in this step of obedience. The last one is quick. I've been a believer a long time and I haven't been baptized and now it's just awkward. <laughs> it's the same as the, the previous argument, really. It's just a little more specific. I want to just read you a parable in Matthew 21. We'll close with this. We'll close with this. A man had two sons, Jesus says. He went to the first one and he said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. And the man answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the man went to the other, uh, then the man went to the other son at the, and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't. Which of these two did the father's will? Even late and faltering obedience is pleasing to Christ. Even late and faltering obedience is pleasing to Christ. And we're going to be so happy and proud of you. If you are not a believer in Christ today, I hope that, uh, that this, this has shown you the core of our faith. We are sinners, dead in our rebellion against God, dead as someone who would be buried underwater but that through faith in Christ, we've been raised to newness of life like being raised out of the water. We've been cleansed from all of our sin, cleansed from all of our guilt, cleansed from all of our shame of our former life, just like water cleanses the body. And my hope is that you will join with us in the family of the church today. If you're in that spot, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll be right down front here for all the theology debate, but mostly for that one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am I'm so grateful for your word. I am, it's weird, Lord, the things you give us to do, you gave us to do. And I just ask for help, God, for my brothers and sisters here, patience with the conversation, patience with obedience, patience with coming alongside you. Lord, I'm just so encouraged by the days we get to baptize people, the day we get to see people make a very bold public proclamation that they are one of yours and they're one of ours. Lord, I just ask for help uh, in hearing today. If I've said anything that needs to be rejected, Holy Spirit, help my people reject it. Help your people reject it. If there's anything that